I so appreciate Andrew's prayer earlier. When I think about this past week, when I think about where so many of our people are and so many of the different things, I know how desperately it is that we need the church. And I find it so encouraging, the scripture we read earlier that talked about how God will take us from the nations, will take us from where we are alone and exiled and alienated and will gather us to be a people, a community, a family on mission together. And we're going to look at a text this morning that gives an account of four friends bringing their other friend to Jesus. So in a minute, I'll ask you to turn to Mark chapter 2. If you haven't been with us for a while, that's what we're doing this fall as we're studying Mark's account, as he says early on, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what Mark is doing in his own kind of fast-paced, pithy, succinct style is he's giving us the gospel of the kingdom. So before we do so, and before we turn to the word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to be our teacher, that we would know Christ and him crucified and risen and ascended and ruling and reigning as Lord. We ask that you would give us teachable hearts, minds, and spirits, that you would open our minds and our hearts to the wondrous things written about you in your word. As you reveal yourself to us, we come under your word. It is our authority for faith and life and practice. And we pray that whether it challenges, convicts, comforts, whatever role your spirit has in teaching us, that we would learn not just for information, not just say, oh, good, I know more facts, but for formation, to have our hearts literally formed after the image of Jesus Christ, that as a result of being in your word, we would love Jesus more. And so, Father, teach us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. The text we're taking a look at this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What do you expect when you go to Jesus? What are your expectations when you turn to him in prayer, 
through his word, what do you think he is up to? You know, there are many instances in the scriptures, the Psalms, for example, where the psalmist will cry out things like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? What are you up to? What's going on? Lord, I don't get it. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but not quite. The psalmists are very raw and real with their prayers before God. So what do you expect when you turn to God? I'm reminded of a story that I heard years ago, so many years ago, I don't even remember exactly when, and I couldn't even tell you exactly where I got it. That's what happens when you've been preaching almost 30 years. You look in your files for stories that have to do with topics, and you have no idea where you got them anymore. So all I know is I didn't make it up. It's not mine. But I heard this story years ago by a man, his uh, inner varsity worker, his name's Paul Little. And Paul Little and his son died in a car crash many years ago. But he gave the following talk at a conference. And he said, can you imagine if my son came to me, teenage son? And he said, Dad, I want you to know that I've been stealing from you. I've been taking from you from time to time. I've been sneaking around. I want to be totally vulnerable to you and let you know I've been rebelling. I have not been listening. I've not been obeying you. But I'm sorry for this. I confess this. I don't like that this is what I've done. And I want to make a new start. I want to be vulnerable before you. And I want to trust you. And I want to return to you. And I'm going to open myself to you. And I'm going to listen to what you have to say. I'm going to heed what you have to say. Now the speaker, Paul, says, says, not all of us are parents in this room. Many of us aren't parents. But can you imagine a situation like that? He said, what would your first response be? Can you imagine what your first response would be? Would you say, aha, now I've got you. Room for you, bread and water, that's it. You finally came, you finally did that. I have you in my power, I've got you finally. Can you imagine a parent ever doing that? Of course not. And he goes on to say, how dare we think so little of God that we would imagine that God would kind of say, if we gave himself utterly, if we, what the Bible calls, repent and turn to him, that he would say to us, to your room, I'm disappointed in you, away from me. He said, is God a worse parent than we are? Of course not. But we're coming before a story this morning. We're going to take a look at this. When we go to him, what does Jesus do? How does Jesus respond? It might not be exactly what we expect. This passage before us lays out the nature. Remember what Mark is teaching us. He's teaching that Jesus, at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So he's talking about spiritual dynamics in the kingdom, life in the kingdom of God. And here we learn two things about spiritual dynamics, about life in the kingdom of God. We learn specifically the surprise of spiritual dynamics, and we learn the vulnerability of spiritual dynamics. Spiritual dynamics are not simply what we expect, and they require a great deal of vulnerability. Okay, The surprise of spiritual dynamics. Let's begin, let's set the scene, the context Verse 1, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. 
Stop there. I love this. This is amazing. This is a pastor's dream come true. I would go nuts if this place were so full and here comes Port Orange at the door that I look up and there's Vic Headley and Rick Bartholomew and Larry Budd. They're going, there are not enough chairs. Here comes Bill Kelly. We need to run more bulletins. They're just at the door. They're clamoring. They can't get in. I'd be sitting up here going, it's oh, awesome. Let's do this. Okay? And he's preaching the word to them. And it says, okay, so there's no more room, not even at the door. He's preaching the word, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now wait, it gets better. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, remember, no room at the door, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they lay down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So we got Larry and Vic and everybody going nuts, getting chairs in and stuff like that. I'm still trying to preach. And all of a sudden, we start to hear. Now, I can't imagine that the men had prepared, you know, the four men bringing their friend had prepared and brought their own tools. Okay, and remember, this is, you know, 30 AD roughly. So there's no chainsaws. There's no. So all of a sudden, you, you start to hear rubble coming down from the, you know. I'd have to admit, I'd probably stop preaching and look up and go, what is going on? And now this is somebody's home. So if I was doing this and we were having house church and this is my home, I just have to confess to you, this is not my wheelhouse. I don't exactly like chaos in my home. I don't deal well with chaos in my home. That's just not one of, you know, we were talking in our Sunday school class earlier about spiritual gifts. Mine is not chaos in the home. I do not have that particular spiritual gift. So exact, So here they come. Picture this scene. This is absolutely a dramatic, incredible scene. And the narrative continues. So here they come. They've dug a hole out in the roof. They're lowering this man on the mat. You still have so many people at the door that they can't get in. So crowds are there. And it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, and I'm thinking, you think? That took a little bit of faith to do that? When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, stop there for a second. Put yourself in the paralytic's shoes. I'm sure when he got up that morning, first of all, he's a paralytic. Do you think he was thinking, I'm going to house church tonight? So his four friends come and say, I heard the itinerant preacher Jesus is in town. He's been healing, I think he can help you. So the paralytic is probably unsure about going, feeling, and we're going to get to the second point, vulnerability. He's feeling exposed. He's feeling vulnerable. You know, okay, I'll let you bring me. They go. He's like, all right, let's, we'll find Jesus at some point in time. They go. They don't have tickets to get in. There's no room at the door. So the four friends say, let's take you up by the roof. Can you imagine the paralytic at this point? Are you sure? Do you know what you're doing? We dig a hole in the roof. They lower him down. Here's Jesus. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. What is his reaction? Uh, Jesus, that's not exactly, that's nice, thank you. Not exactly why I'm here. Have you noticed the non-walking thing? Have you picked up on the mat? And Jesus says, oh no, I got it right. See, Jesus knows something that the man and us does not know. And this is the surprise 
or maybe we may even say the depth of spiritual dynamics. Now, at this point, I need to tell you that nobody dissects this as well as Tim Keller, my faculty advisor at Westminster Seminary, and I am absolutely, totally indebted to him for the understanding of spiritual dynamics in this point. And he says that we need to realize that the main problem in ours or any person's life is never his suffering, it's his sin. Now, let me explain something here, because I don't want you to get me wrong. Jesus absolutely cares about our suffering. We're going to see that. He's going to heal the man. He cares about the people who have suffered in the earthquake or the tsunami. He cares about our prayers for people who are diseased with cancer. He cares about people who are being hurt and abused. He cares about us holistically. The Bible even says, the book of Isaiah says, that I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praise of the Lord, in all their affliction. God, Isaiah is speaking as the prophet, the mouthpiece of the Lord, and he says, in all of their affliction, speaking for the Lord, I was afflicted. Do you know what that means? That means when we suffer, God is not a part, standing with hands folded, going, I hope you buck up and do well. That means when we suffer, he's in our shoes, actually feeling the pain with us. That he's suffering in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. So don't get me wrong. God cares about this man's pain, and he's going to deal with our suffering. He just says, you've got to go deeper. Something has to happen first. And remember, we're talking about life in the kingdom. Healing is a kingdom blessing and a kingdom reality. But you can't come into the kingdom as you are. Coming into the presence of Jesus is not a come-as-you-are party. You have to be made right or rectified to come into the kingdom. And again, Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if you find Jesus' response offensive, please at least consider this. If someone says to you, the main problem in your life is not what's happened to you, or not what people have done to you, your main problem is the way you've responded to that, he says, ironically, that's empowering. Why? Because you can't do very much about what's happened to you or about what other people are doing, but you can do something about yourself. When the Bible talks about sin, and this is very important, please listen. When the Bible talks about sin, it is not simply referring to the bad things we do. It's not just lying or lust or whatever the case may be. It is ignoring God in the world he has made. It is rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It is saying, I will decide exactly how I live my life. And Jesus is saying, that's our main problem. Sin is a disease we've been infected with, and the disease is autonomy. The disease is deciding for yourself, you yourself being the arbiter of what is right. And everything else are the symptoms of that disease. And here I have to make a thesis statement. And the thesis statement is simply this. Jesus loves you a whole lot more than you want him to love you. See, here's what we want. We want Jesus to love us Up to a point. We want Jesus to love us in such a way that he will exercise his power to make our lives better. 
I want that much love. Give me that much love. But Jesus loves us enough to be interested in the entirety of us as people. Jesus loves our whole person. He loves us spiritually. He loves us physically. He loves us intellectually. He loves how we relate to others. He loves how we relate to ourselves. He loves us holistically. His love is a complete and total love. See, the man and us, okay, if the man represents us, of course, and Jesus does not condemn this desire. He doesn't condemn it. What he says is, you're not going deep enough. The man comes to him and, of course, wants a better life. For him, that means to walk. Jesus doesn't say that's a wrong desire. Jesus is saying, son, you haven't gone far enough. You haven't gone deep enough. See, Jesus is about not just giving us a better life, but making us better humans. Remember what the Christian life is all about? Jesus is the exact image of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And the Christian life for us is us being conformed, sculpted, molded, refined, and polished to that perfect mold. Jesus is not only a perfect spiritual human, he is a complete human being. Jesus is interested in making us complete and total human beings. Again, listen to how Tim Keller puts it. He says, the roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep. Our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something besides Jesus. Whether it's to succeed in our chosen field or to have a certain relationship or even to get up and walk, we're saying, if I have that, if I have that, if I get my deepest wish, then everything will be okay. You're looking to that thing to save you from oblivion, from disillusionment, from mediocrity. You've made that wish your savior. He says, of course, we never say that, but that's what's happening. And if you never quite get it, you are angry, unhappy, empty. And Jesus is saying, you see, if you have me, I will actually fulfill you. And if you fail me, I will always forgive you. And I need to tell you, this is not simply how to become a Christian. This is also how we walk as Christians, because Christians, let me speak to you as Christians, as followers of Jesus for a minute. If you find yourself angry, that doesn't mean yelling and ranting and raving. You know, we Christians, we know sometimes how to be, you know, angry in a, in a very socially acceptable sense. It's called bad moods. Any of you ever get in a bad mood, irritable, kind of underneath? I think that's my spiritual gift. I'm good at bad moods. Or feeling empty, or feeling disillusioned, or feeling irritable, or feeling frustrated. What's going on is you're saying something in life. You're looking to something and say, if I have that, I will be okay. I won't be mediocre. My life will make sense. And we are making that, and as Andrew prayed, our hearts are idol-making factories and the flesh is still with us to influence. That means your flesh today, this very moment, 
is a factory cranking out. The economy can only wish it could provide enough jobs as our heart makes idols. Because we're cranking out the idols looking to something else, building our identity on something other than Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. That's what he is saying to us. The question is, are we listening? See, the problem is, we don't want Jesus to love us that much. The surprising depth of spiritual dynamics. We want Jesus to give us a better life. We want Jesus to give us that thing we wish for. Career going well. Success in the chosen field. That certain relationship. Kids grandkids, health, being right, whatever, that is becoming our savior. That is what we're looking to for fulfillment. That very thing becomes an idol. And Jesus loves us a whole lot more than we want him to love us. I think nobody illustrates it and puts it as poetically and as beautifully as C.S. Lewis I don't know if it says something about the level of my intellect. I love going to C.S. Lewis's children's books. And there's nothing like his Narnia tales. And I know we all know Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I think one of my favorites is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's about a boy, and his name is Eustace. And everybody hates Eustace, and for good reason. He's mean, he's greedy, can't get along with anybody. He's selfish. He's just not a nice boy. But he finds himself on this boat called the Dawn Treader, and the boat is taking a voyage. And the boat finds its way onto an island, and Eustace wanders off by himself and enters a cave. And the cave is filled with diamonds and rubies and gold and treasures and riches. And all of a sudden, Eustace is ecstatic. Think, I'm rich. I've got it. And he falls asleep on the pile of treasure, which he doesn't know is the hoard of an ugly dragon. And he falls asleep, and because he falls asleep with these dragonish thoughts in his mind, when he wakes up, he's become a dragon. And so he's this big, ugly, terrible dragon, and he realizes there's no way out. And then Aslan shows up. And Aslan, who was C.S. Lewis's Christ figure, comes on the scene. And what happens when Aslan shows up? Aslan leads Eustace to a pool, a pool of water. And he says, Eustace, I want you to undress and jump in the pool. And Eustace says, okay. And he starts to do that, and he begins to undress. And what he realizes is that to undress means to take the dragon skin off. So he begins to peel off the dragon skin, only to find that underneath the dragon skin is a second layer of dragon skin. He peels off the dragon skin, only to find out there's another layer of dragon skin. And he keeps trying, and every time the same thing happens, more dragon skin. And finally, Aslan says, Eustace, you're not going deep enough. And here is how Eustace put it, and I'll take these words directly from C.S. Lewis describing this. Eustace says, oh, so afraid of his claws, I can't tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, 
Only when I did it, it didn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything but only for a moment. Then I looked up and I saw and I was a boy again. Friends, do you let Jesus go deep enough? See, here's why. I don't think we do. I know we're going to say, oh yeah, I do. But we don't. And we don't because we know it's going to smart. We know it's going to hurt. See, Jesus loves us more than we want him to love us. We want Jesus to love us enough that he gives us a fairly good life. Oh, we're realistic about it. But a fairly good life and good moral behavior when Jesus is about making us beautiful human beings. Human beings that are conformed to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who's neither conservative nor liberal. Jesus Christ, who's always a third way. Jesus Christ, who's both a warrior confronting and gentle and tender, who can hold you like he's holding a bird in his hands and not crush you. Jesus Christ, who's both strong and gentle. Jesus Christ, who's both truth and love. Jesus Christ, who's righteousness and justice and goodness and beauty. And he, see, he has a bigger vision for you than you do for yourself. And that's the vision he had for this man here. Son, your sins are forgiven. What do you expect when you go to Jesus? Now let me try to get practical with you for just a couple of minutes. That's the surprising nature of spiritual dynamics. Jesus is about something that we probably don't expect. What does it take? It takes vulnerability. It takes vulnerability as individuals and as a church. And we see this, and you're going to think I'm giving you a four-point sermon here, but I promise I'm not. We see it at three levels. Still a two-point sermon, three sub-points. But there are three points of vulnerability that you have to see here. First, I want you to notice the vulnerability of the man's friends. They're vulnerable enough to know what this man needs. While not knowing exactly what Jesus would do, they were vulnerable enough to say, we don't know what's going to happen, we don't get this, we don't get... but we're going to bring you to Jesus. Somehow, some way, Jesus must be the answer. So they brought their friends to Jesus. And I might add, at a great cost to themselves. Remember, they're the ones cutting the roof. They're the ones showing up at this house cutting the roof. I'm not sure they had counted. I wonder how much this roof's going to cost. Have we thought about making an insurance claim? What are we doing here? All they knew is we're going to do whatever it takes to bring our friend to Jesus. And that required incredible vulnerability. And just as point of application, notice they did it together. None of us can do evangelism and love our friends like this simply by ourselves. We need the entire body. We need the community. This was the four of them. We need to have community groups bringing their friends to Jesus. We need to have the church bringing their friends to Jesus. We need to have families bringing their friends to Jesus. We need the entire church to be a family on mission where we love Volusia County more than we love Spruce Creek Church. Why are we here? We're here to bring our friends to Jesus. And that requires vulnerability. Are we willing to do that? Second, this man. 
Again, I mentioned him before, but think how vulnerable he was. For him to go to Jesus, he must get down on the mat. For us to go to Jesus, we have to get on our, I'll call it metaphorical mats, the mats of vulnerability. Have you ever wondered why sometimes it's easier to give love than to receive love? Giving love still leaves you in a little bit of control, doesn't it? Receiving love doesn't. Receiving love requires us getting on the mat, risking misunderstanding, risking exposure, risking rejection. We have to get on the mat to come to Jesus. What is your mat that you have to get onto? What is your shame? What is your guilt? What is your fear? What, is your, what are you afraid of in being real and being raw in coming to Jesus? And then lastly, look at Jesus' vulnerability. Look with me at the rest of the text. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, okay? So they're not speaking this now. I want you to notice what's going on. This is their inward thoughts. They're questioning in their hearts. And what are they questioning? They say, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So what are, what are they thinking and what is Jesus saying by forgiving sins? He's claiming to be the creator, the Lord of the universe. He's claiming to be God here. They have it right in that sense. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So, okay, now we have the beginning of conflict. But only Jesus knows this because they're questioning in their hearts. Because the scribes aren't revealing this. It's not like they're going to his face and saying, Jesus, you blasphemer. No, they're sneaky. Power struggle going on. Undercurrent going on. They're saying in their hearts, Jesus is doing this. This is conflict that will only increase and progress as we move through the gospel. So they're thinking that Jesus is blaspheming. So Jesus responds and says that. And I wonder what they were thinking when Jesus responds, by the way. That's kind of an interesting part of this narrative because all of a sudden Jesus says, um, Hey, boys, by the way, why do you question these things in your hearts? Can you imagine them going, oh, how'd you come up with that one? We weren't thinking that. Hmm, we didn't say that. I mean, just picture this. Sometimes notice the surprising nature of narratives all over the place. And Jesus says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, of course, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? We might think at first sight, easy question to answer, but be careful, not so fast. At first sight, it might seem, well, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but to rise, take up, I mean, you actually have to heal somebody to do that. But again, Tim Keller says, wait a second, look a little deeper, deeper, a little more closely, because he writes, Jesus is also saying, my friends, it is going to be infinitely harder to affect the forgiveness of sins than you can imagine. I'm not just a miracle worker, I am the Savior. Any miracle worker can say, take up your mat and walk, but only the Savior of the world can say to a human being, all your sins, past, present, future, as far as the east is from the west, thrown into the depths of the sea, are sent away, 
are satisfied, are forgotten, are forgiven. And he says right here, as early as Mark chapter 2, the shadow of the cross is falling across Jesus' path. For Jesus knows that to be our Savior, he is going to have to die. How vulnerable will Jesus become? He will become vulnerable enough to die, and not on any old death, but a death on a cross, a death by crucifixion, a death which by every account shows him cursed by God, mocked, forsaken. Jesus will die to affect both your forgiveness and your healing. Your healing, if not now, definitely in the consummated, completed kingdom. See, it takes Jesus' death. It was going to take the utter and utmost vulnerability of Jesus. See, no matter what vulnerability we go through, And Jesus here is not denying our vulnerability. He says we will be vulnerable. It will be pain. He is not overlooking that, but he's saying put it in perspective. It's temporary compared to the cost of what I'm going through to usher in the victory of the kingdom. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, will become vulnerable enough to die. To guarantee your forgiveness now and your healing. Maybe now, definitely in the consummated kingdom. Friends, what do you expect from Jesus? Will you turn to him? Will you let him mold you? Shape you? Surprise you? Will you be vulnerable to him? Let's pray. Lord, help us to, we know that no matter what, you are sovereign and you are writing our story. Oh, but that we would be surrendered and submissive enough to go along with you, with joy, with honesty, with authenticity, with a reality, as you write our story. Father, I do pray. that we would allow ourselves to be loved by you fully, not just in the partway ways that we have a tendency to do, make our life better. Oh, that we would embrace your conforming us to the image of Jesus. And that requires a vulnerability. May we grow in being more and more vulnerable before you. May we not just do this ourselves. May we be vulnerable together as a church, a family on mission in this particular place, in this particular time. We thank you, Father. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.